Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we approach Christmas and Christmas tide, and Lord, as we enter into this fourth week of Advent, this time of waiting is nearly over liturgically, but of course our time of waiting for your return continues on. Lord, I ask that you would give us that certain hope of the resurrection. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, we are here in the fourth Sunday of Advent, and um, just wanted to review a little bit where we've been the past four weeks. Um, Remember, our first week of Advent, we talked about waiting with certainty, right? That we wait, but we wait with certainty. The second week, we talked about comfort and and preparation, the comfort that we can take in our salvation. But the preparation that still goes on as we continue in our salvation. Last week, Joy or Rejoice Sunday, we talked about, no surprise here, joy, right? And rejoicing and what it means to have the joy of the Lord. Today, we're looking at God's promise. The texts today talk about God's promises fulfilled in Christ Jesus One of the Christmas carols that we sing every year is a carol from Germany, Lo, How a Rose Air Blooming. Does anybody know that carol? It's one of the lesser known ones, I think, but majestic in its way. And it really fits the text today. I want to start out by reading the first verse for it. Lo, how a rose air blooming, from tender stem hath sprung. Of Jesse's lineage coming, as men of old have sung. It came a flower bright, amid the cold of winter, when half gone was the night. If you've ever been to Europe, or even here in some of the older churches, you'll see God's promise represented in a very specific way. If you ever look at an icon or a stained glass or famous painting from perhaps Florence, you'll see the Annunciation, the Gospel reading for today, depicted. And of course there's the angel, right, appearing, the angel Gabriel appearing before St. Mary, the mother of our Lord. And the angel appears and Mary is in various positions. Sometimes she's shown frightened, sometimes she's shown adoring. Um, it's, it's interesting um, how artists depict her reaction and when they're depicting her reaction in that encounter. But one of the things that you'll often see is the angel Gabriel bringing a stem of flowers to Mary. Have you ever seen that? He's got this, this stem of flowers in his hand as he greets Mary at the Annunciation. And I learned as I studied over there um, that this is very intentional, that the artists are showing God's promise with this flower, with this stem of flowers. And some artists go further, and you'll see Gabriel in Gabriel's hand the stem, and you'll see three flowers, and you'll see 
two of them open and one still closed or still budded. And that's showing that God's promise is slowly being fulfilled and that the first two people, persons of the Trinity, are being revealed to man. And the third flower is yet closed because Pentecost hasn't happened and the Holy Spirit hasn't fallen on God's people yet. It's really some powerful imagery and it harkens back to the same roots that this low how a rose are blooming carol harkens back to. This idea that God's promise to fulfill salvation history is certain and is coming, is blooming. But I want to start today by looking at our first lesson. It's all about living in a house, isn't it? It's one of those lessons where we see the humanity of King David. King David thinks that it's wrong that God does not live in a house when he lives in a palace. And that's understandable, right? We see this in, both in Second uh, Samuel and in the psalm. In the psalm, verse 2, or verse 1 and 2, we read, Lord, remember David in all his trouble how he swore unto the Lord and vowed a vow unto the Almighty God of Jacob. I will not come within the tabernacle of my house, nor climb up into my bed. I will not allow my eyes to sleep, nor my eyelids to slumber, neither the temples of my head to take any rest, until I find a place for the temple of the Lord, a habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. And of course, we get the story of this, in our first reading, the Old Testament lesson from Second Samuel chapter 7. Now when the king lived in his house, and this is David, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Like I said, it makes sense, right? Here the king of Israel is in this beautiful palace, but the Lord, their God, is in the tent. But interestingly, God has a bigger picture that both King David and Nathan miss, right? What looks good up close to King David and Nathan is in fact something that God has in place for a purpose, God's thinking long-term, like thousands of years long-term, often what we can't see. And so look at verse 4. The Lord speaks to Nathan the prophet. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from all places where I moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? What's God saying here? He's actually saying that it's more important for him than living in a nice house, a temple. It's more important for him that he dwells with his people. And the fact that he's in a tent shows that he's always on the move with his people, wherever they go. Notice what he says here. He continues talking about how he's been with God's people in battle, 
how he's been with them at peace. And there will be a time for a temple, notice, but not yet. Look at verse 9. And I've been with you, this is God speaking, wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. God has chosen to reside with his people, Zion, with his people. Those are, his people and Zion are used interchangeably. And we can apply that to the church today, too, because we, too, are his people. So far from needing or wanting King David to build him a house, he wishes to build David a house. He flips the whole idea on its head. And look, he's not you know, against what David's doing, but he's saying, no, I have a bigger plan for you and your people And this is one of those interesting places where the Hebrew word actually aligns with the English word. It doesn't happen very often. But the word is actually ba'ith, ba'ith, which means house in Hebrew. But it also means dynasty or household or family. Okay? And so do you see the word play that's going on here? David says, Lord, I want to build you a house. And the Lord responds, No, David, I will build you a house. And it's going to be far beyond what you could possibly imagine. Look at verses 11 and 12. From the time I appointed judges over my people, he says, and I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is God speaking to King David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So you see, God has something much grander planned, something eternal, something beyond a house of cedar for King, for King David. And so this is sometimes called the Davidic covenant because this is God making this promise to King David that he will be king of this great people and that his kingdom will have no end. That should sound familiar to you, right? comes from the creed. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see how God is revealing his promise fulfillment here. What else do you see in the second Samuel passage? What other promises does God make to King David? Look at verse 9. I will make your name great. Well, look, we're still talking about King David, right? Even in secular circles, there's books upon the leadership of King David. Verse 10. Appoint a place for God's people and give peace. Now, this is an interesting one because it has both a short-term and long-term fulfillment, right? Immediately after this, David's kingdom does have some peace. But, of course, the rest of Israeli history has not been one of peace. And so, we're looking forward here, too. 
Look at verse 13, another promise. To establish His throne and kingdom forever. That's the central one. And to be a father and discipline His Son and always love Him. As we've seen before, these prophecies are always imminent and distant. Meaning they always deal with something that's right at hand, maybe 50 or 100 years from the prophecy that's going on. But then they march through history, maybe 100 years or 400 years, and then maybe 1,000 years or 2,000 years to the far distant. And what we see is God's perspective and God's will blooming like a flower, coming forth in constancy. And we realize as human beings that we're so small in the course of all that. We're so small, we're so fleeting like the grass, as the other psalm says. As we've seen before with prophecy, this Davidic prophecy is something that's going to be prophesied about both the immediate and the distant to a thousand years. And some of Nathan's prophecy speaks of things that King David will see. Look at verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What's that talking about? Well, right there in that verse is hinged together the eternal and the imminent, right? Who's going to build God a house? Well, those of you that know Scripture know it's not King David, but who? Solomon, his son, right. Solomon, his son, builds his house. And God has all sorts of reasons for that, which are interesting too. But of course, notice that this kingdom that's going to be forever looks forward to Jesus Christ, long after Solomon. Most scholars think that King David was reigning around 1000 B.C., 1,000 B.C. So that's 1,000 years before Jesus' advent here on earth. And yet, this prophecy is ongoing. For years, Israel, as I said earlier, is not at peace. In fact, it's at war with itself. There's all sorts of dissension. And then we see the kingdom split, Judah and Israel split apart, and David's ancestors are not godly, or David's descendants, rather, are not godly. Right? How many times do we read in the book of Chronicles or in the book of Kings, and this king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Right? There's a whole lot of worse kings that come after David. And yet, God doesn't abandon his people. He disciplines them. He chastises them. He even has them invaded by a foreign country and taken away as slaves as part of that discipline. And yet, he continues to love them. Some 400 years after God promises this to David, so in the timeline, David's at 1000 B.C., this is around 400 B.C., the prophet Jeremiah writes this in Jeremiah 33, verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Well, that's interesting imagery too, isn't it? A righteous branch. Think back to those paintings and the flowers. 
For in those days, and at the time, that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. What's the prophet Jeremiah looking for? Looking to? He's showing, yes, the Davidic covenant has not been fulfilled completely yet. But this person, Jesus Christ, will represent God's people in Jerusalem and be called, the Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our justice. This can also be translated our moral rightness, our right standing. Jeremiah obviously sees that God has not yet fulfilled his covenant. And of course, God himself is proclaiming this through this prophecy in Jeremiah. So the Davidic covenant points to a righteous king. And of course, we know who that king is because his birth is coming up on our liturgical calendar. Jesus is a son of King David. St. Matthew affirms this at the beginning of his gospel when he gives that lineage of Jesus, as does St. Luke. Furthermore, the gospel of Matthew talks about Jesus being the son of David no less than 17 times. So Leah and I were talking about um, Jesus' identity this week. She was reading, I don't know what you were reading, you were reading something in the daily office and asked me a question about one of uh, Jesus' titles. And I was saying that it's really difficult for us as modern Christians to break apart the different titles and expectations for Jesus, right? Because for us, it all gets smashed together, wonderfully smashed together, in the person of Jesus, the Christ. But of course, his being the Christ actually means something different than his being the king, which means something different than his being the savior, which means something different from his being the redeemer. Right? All of those things, that, those words that we use, have a different nuance as to how Jesus is saving us. Right? And this one is no different than that. That Jesus is the son of David would have brought with it some very real things for the Hebrew people. Number one... He's a king, or at least a prince, right? Well, what does that mean? When you hear about the advent of a king or the advent of a prince, the arrival of a king or a prince, put yourself in the shoes of a, of a first century B.C. Jew. What does that mean? Things are looking pretty dark politically for them at the moment when Jesus is born. Who's on the throne? Who's the king they know of? Herod, right, and Caesar, right, the king over the king, right? Herod, is Herod a son of David? No, Herod actually is this usurper that is very wily and gets into power by befriending Julius Caesar and weaseling his way to be king of Judea in the middle of the Roman Empire. He's actually a really fascinating and evil person, um, but he's, he's like the best politician my brother-in-law and I were talking about politicians last night. You want to talk about the, the capital politician. Um, Herod is certainly the politician, the consummate politician. Above him is Octavian, 
who styles himself Caesar Augustus, unquestionably in charge of the Roman Empire. So you have King Herod, governors, tribunes, centurions, all ruling with an iron fist. And here we are talking about hope in a king. We believe we began this Advent talking about waiting. Can you imagine what God's people were going through in their waiting, in their suffering? They had only been free for a little bit of time, around 50 years before Jesus' birth. That's what Hanukkah actually celebrates. But then the Greeks and the Romans came in. And they were under the Roman yoke of oppression. Some waited. Some compromised. Some tried to play the system. But there were still some who had hope in this coming king who believed that God would make good on his promise to David. Verse 132, verse 14, um, Psalm 132, verse 14, voices this, where we read, For the Lord has chosen Zion to be a habitation for himself. He has longed for her. He has longed for her. Into all this, the archangel Gabriel comes to an oppressed and distressed city in Nazareth. He calls on a virgin named Mary, this young girl, this heavenly creature, comes to her with good news. And she hears his news. The waiting is over. Do you see what she's being told? You will bear a son who will be a son of David. And she is in the lineage of David too. The promise is being fulfilled. Look at verses 28 through 33 of our Gospel reading. So this is Luke chapter 1, verses 28 through 33. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. There's another one of his titles. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. Do you see what the angel is saying here? She's going to give birth to a king. Do you see why so many people were angry at Jesus and confused by his ministry? He was supposed to be the king to save them. The king to liberate Israel as a kingdom. The political solution. Jesus was not the political solution. He was something far more important. For this reason, St. Peter actually rebuffs Jesus. Remember, Peter, who just calls Jesus the Christ, which means the Messiah, when Jesus says he has to go to the cross, says, Lord, may it never be so. He too doesn't understand how the king is going to go to the cross and die. You see, what God 
God takes what looks like a defeat in Jesus' execution on the cross and makes it the victory. The cross becomes the throne. The throne lasts forever. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of this Davidic covenant. He's God's promise made man and dwelling among us. And Mary's waiting is rewarded with great joy. Yes, great suffering too, but great joy. For she has the hope of the certainty that Jesus will finish salvation history. Now Christmas is coming. The birth of our Savior on the liturgical calendar is coming. The return of the Son of God is coming. Can we be like St. Mary and put our trust in the hope of Jesus' return? Again, we started with a conversation about waiting and certainty. Friends, I hope you are waiting with certainty. I hope that the comfort of your salvation is driving your preparation for Jesus' return. I hope that you're having some joy because that's what God gives us. Jesus is the son of David, the offspring of Jesse, and we can look back and see God's reliability over thousands of years. This should be a hope to us and a joy to us because we see that He's never let down His promises. Yes, there's some yet to be fulfilled, and yet He never forgets His people. His joy is in dwelling with Zion, as the psalm says, and He will draw Zion to Himself as He returns to come again. He always keeps His promises. His covenants stand forever. Again, we sing about this in that Christmas carol from 500 years ago in Germany, and it underlies it. Look what we sing. Isaiah twas foretold it, the rose I have in mind. With Mary we behold it, the virgin mother kind. To show God's love aright, he, she bore to men a Savior when half gone was the night. This flower, whose fragrance tender with sweetness fills the air, dispels with glorious splendor the darkness everywhere. True man, yet very God. From sin and death he saves us and lightens every load. As we come to Christmas Eve, as we go forth in Christmas tide, friends, no matter what happens around us in the world, may the reality of Jesus' first coming and may the certainty of his second coming lighten every load for you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.